Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. On today's podcast, the CEO of the Canadian Business Council, Goldie Hyder, on the cost of the rail blockades. Also, Dan Kelly, who is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, on the same issue, plus what it's doing to Canada's small business sector, Canada's number one employer sector. Former British Columbia Premier Ujjal Dessange, you'll hear him speak to the rail blockade. And Aaron O'Toole, who's running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada, also a member of Parliament, former Cabinet Minister, saying the blockades should be removed. And just to change the subject, the major leagues, the Houston Astros, the anger, and will there be vigilante justice once the season starts? We'll speak with Adam Earnhardt, professor and most knowledgeable person on sports fans that I think you're going to find anywhere. What's the real costs in hundreds of millions and perhaps more already in dollars, as well as the indirect impact of the rail blockades on and to Canada's economy and on the nation's corporations? How long can Canada's largest companies weather the storm? Goldie Hyder is president and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Hyder, thank you very much for the time. Good to be back. Thanks for having me, Roy. Business Council of Canada wrote a letter to the federal government about the rail blockades and the impact. What's the message that you sent to the federal government and to the Prime Minister? Well, in fact, the letter um, has nearly 50 organizations that have participated in this, led by the Chamber, Canadian Chamber of Commerce, which, of course, reflects not just the big, because to be honest with you, Roy, I'm a little less worried about the big. I'm far more worried about the impact on small and medium enterprises. I'm far more worried about the impact on real people who are losing their jobs. And I can tell you, you know, the impact from an economic perspective is starting to mount and it's really adding up. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about people who are waiting for something as critical as propane, uh, the movement of our agricultural uh, products that, that need to move, our, or our energy products. You know, this is impacting from coast to coast to coast. I don't know that phrase is used a lot, but this literally is impacting everybody. I spoke earlier, uh, many of our listeners heard me speak with Dan Kelly, the uh, mm-hmm. president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, representing the very people you were just talking about, the small and medium-sized business community. And he pointed a very, painted a very concerning picture about what these business owners and operators are facing. Layoffs are imminent. For some, it's already happening. Some of them are very worried about even the survival of their companies because they're working on very tight margins. Yeah, there's no question, and uh, you know Dan is of course one of the signatures to this to this letter, and as I said, it's nearly 50 national organizations. And I think what it's also saying to uh, the government writ large is, look, um, not only are we sharing with you the impact that this is having, but we're extending our hand to offer you support to find a way forward that that acknowledges that the dangers here in terms of not wanting to escalate this to a critical state. I, I was. Uh, the recipient of a generous phone call from Premier Ford here today where he talked about, you know, what we need are timelines and not deadlines, and that where we find ourselves right now is in an emergency situation, but not a state of emergency. Now, we, we all know that the latter is inconceivable uh, in Canada, but who knows where all of this is going to go in the next 24 to 48 hours, and I think that there's no question um, this issue has exposed a number of things. First of all, it shows us that we don't know who speaks for the Indigenous communities. 
because the reality is there are significant there is significant support for the development of infrastructure projects uh, in Canada. You know the coastal gas line that people are concerned about. Over six hundred twenty million dollars of Indigenous businesses have benefited from that, from that, from so far from the construction of that pipeline. There are at least three or Indigenous groups businesses that are lining up to um, provide to purchase an equity stake, a majority stake in our TMX pipeline. So this notion that this these protests are about uh, all Indigenous communities. I think we have to stop reporting it mm-hmm. that way. The reality is there's a significant amount of support, but there clearly is an Indigenous issue here between the hereditary, uh, some hereditary chiefs and those the, that, the, that, the, that the people elected to represent them. Who are we supposed to sp- engage with and who speaks for them? That's not an issue that we from the outside can, can resolve, but clearly they need to resolve that. Our issue federally is we need to have a, a, a dialogue on a state-to-state relationship. You can't have a dialogue on a train track, and you can't do it while the economy is being held hostage. So my recommendation has been, you know, it's straightforward. Pull the police, because we know that will go a long way in, 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 uh, in helping uh, the Indigenous communities find a way, we believe, to bring down the blockades, and, and, and launch a process launch a process that allows for these discussions to take place at the government level from premiers from first nations leaders and yes bring in uh, businesses large and small bring in labor because we're all in this together and we're all being impacted you know let's find a way forward we know that the alternative is a very high risk proposition and could destroy not just our economy but our reputation globally it's unfortunate that you have to deliver this message via this radio program or via your letter to the politicians they should be thinking of these options and acting on them before you actually have to write the letter. Mr. Heider, what about the, tell us please, what, what's the actual dollar, do we have a, a, a reasonably accurate dollar cost to our economy? What's it cost us so far? Well, let's just put it in context, uh, Roy. You know, um, 70% of the products that are delivered inside of Canada in terms of trade and, and purchasing of products are actually moved by rail, 70%. You have 50% of, rail, of, of all the um, products that are being uh, exported uh, you know, or imported into the country being moved by rail. We know that there are ships sitting on our coasts waiting to deliver products and or pick up products. And it's been you know, several weeks in the making now. And what we have to remember about this is even if we are to find a way forward, you know, by the time this radio broadcast ends, the fact is, it's not an on and off switch for the economy and for, for our transportation infrastructure. It is at least a three to four day delay and a lag time in getting it going. So thus the urgency. And then, of course, as you're hearing, you know, the layoffs are starting to mount. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's 1,000 at uh, CN or 500 at, at VIA and others, or I think the reverse, but it, it is... It is just the beginning, and as you point out, we don't even know about the impact this is happening on the mom-and-pop shop. You know, just yesterday, (laughs) that's a dentist office, the person was saying, you know, the impact this is having in terms of his his, uh, staff being able to get to work, because some of them live where they need to take a via rail. This is real. This is very real. And it, it shouldn't have taken anyone by surprise. Uh, if you plan for issues, if you plan for contingencies, and then you're prepared to deal with them, you're in far better shape. It just seems to me that there wasn't any proper preparation, uh, and, and it became a political football of opportunity well, for some, I, and that's disturbing. I think, I think, Roy, what we have here is a scenario where it, it's, you know, it's difficult to govern, it's hard to govern, and it's particularly hard if you're trying to thread the needle on I'm going to be able to reconcile with the indigenous communities. 
I am going to be able to um, you know, address all my climate change commitments uh, you know, today, tomorrow, and the day after. And uh, I'm going to um, support the energy sector in, in building the infrastructure necessary to get their products to market. That's the narrative. But it's coming home to roost because, you know, there's a lot of, um, um, how do I put it, but there's a lot of tensions between all three of those mm-hmm. objectives. And it requires, I think, leadership, and I think it requires an all-hands-on-deck approach. I travel the world, and I see governments working very cooperatively with big businesses and small businesses and labor and others. This coalition is an indication of that. When you have about 50 national organizations, I would argue with you that they represent largely the economy of the country and the very middle class that our political parties claim that they seek office for. Well, those are the people that are being harmed today. Mr. Heider, I have to to stop you simply because we've run out of time, but your message resonates, and it should resonate all the way to the very top of our political structure and get everybody involved, all hands on deck. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Roy. Great talking to you. Dan Kelly is back with his president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, drying up shipments and cash flow, um, a huge issue. Dan, uh, if, if, thank you for the time. As you look around now, six or seven days after we spoke last, how much more significantly difficult is the situation for the entrepreneurs, the small and medium-sized business people in this country? It is getting worse by the hour. Uh, there's I mean, a little bit of optimism, given the tougher language the Prime Minister used just yesterday. But the examples of the problems for small and medium-sized firms, the layoffs that I'm hearing about uh, that are just starting, uh, the loss of customers, not just in the short term, but the fear of that they're losing customers for the long term, it is setting in. Just uh, We just did a survey yesterday and have had hundreds of responses from small companies with their real-life examples of how this how this blockade is affecting them, and the impacts in many cases are just huge. And this is coast to coast. Absolutely, I've got a, a car dealer in Newfoundland and Labrador that has customers waiting for cars uh, and not paying him, of course, until they receive it. Uh, the cars uh, were supposed to be coming on rail to Halifax and then by ship uh, from to St. John's. Uh, they're blocked. A member from uh, New Brunswick just. Uh, just sent us a note about the impact that this is having on his sign business, that he's wait- his, his international customers are waiting for them. Uh, I've got tons of grain farmers and, and pork, pork producers uh, that are telling me that uh, that their, their products are stuck, and some of them, given that there's warmer temperatures in parts of the country, they're worried about spoilage and who's checking whether or not the, their, their fresh products are are valid. Uh, restaurants affected because some of the things that they need when they're doing a major renovation are stuck somewhere on the rail. So this is not just farmers or, or or natural resources companies. This is right across the industry spectrum and from coast to coast. So they don't want to be hearing the Prime Minister of Canada or any politician say, we've been patient, the people of Canada have been patient. They want this situation to be resolved so they can continue with their business, not be impeded as they are, and jobs at stake. There must be... I mean... the. the What's the word that describes how these uh, how your how your members are feeling right now? Anger is would that do it? Well, it's moving to anger. I, I think. Look, in the first couple of days, people were reasonably understanding, recognizing that uh, that uh, that there are some legitimate concerns on the part of many people, either from an environmental perspective or for from you know indigenous issues that have yet to be resolved. 
But they feel, many of them, are feeling like they are innocent bystanders uh, to, to what is going on uh, and have no, no party to, uh, to some of the issues that are, that are there and yet are having the livelihoods of their companies, the future of their companies mm-hmm. put in jeopardy, and for their staff, real worries, as they are now forced to lay them off. But businesses don't have an income, and as you rightly said just at the outset, they don't have huge cash reserves to kind of ride out these situations. They have to deal with this today. The workers then are going to start hitting it on the chin. When that happens, you really worry about the, the social unity of the country when people are laid off as a result of these blockades. That is something that cannot be understated. The effect on the social unity and the social fabric of this country it cannot be understated and it cannot be underestimated and it's not going to be dealt with with words. It's going to have be dealt with by action uh, to to resolve this issue, and to carry on and, and get business flowing again in Canada. And when we hear that ports are, a, are basically uh, you know shut down, uh, let me ask you this: Are any of your members suggesting to you in the communications you receive at CFIB that their businesses are actually under survival threat because of this? Yeah, the, the, uh, we're hearing that very message, Roy, that uh, businesses saying, I'm not sure about my future in Canada. And that's coming from a few places. One, they're, they're worried about the, the short-term effects on their cash flow, whether these businesses can make it through uh, a potentially long blockade. Second, they worry about their the, you know, loss of long-term contracts. If an international c- uh, customer of theirs is not likely to be terribly sympathetic if the reason that they're not able to get their goods is because of the rail blockades through no fault of the, the actual business, Canadian business that they're dealing with. Yeah. And then the, the bigger concern, and I think a concern on the part of many of us, is this has now gone on for a couple of weeks, and, and who knows, maybe a successful technique for, for, uh, for some of the groups involved. And should it be, you worry about how many copycat scenarios we're going to start to see in Canada, yep. where, where every discussion uh, you know, any disgruntled group turns to a rail blockade to get government to pay attention to them. And yeah. that, of course, if that starts to happen, if that's a commonplace thing in Canada, I mean, you could say goodbye to Canada's international reputation and the reputation of these businesses as reliable suppliers to the world. Uh, the last words of my uh, commentary at RoyGreenShow.com that I posted yesterday reads thusly, Canada is a nation of laws, question mark, then enforce them. Failure to do so does not demonstrate strength and resolve. Rather, it timidly greenlights even more disruptive and harming future behaviors. And that's what you just said, Dan. Your wise words, right? And that is a huge concern. And when we, and this is editorial commentary from me, if you have anarchists, blocking rail lines or blocking access or causing problems for people and they don't have any connection to First Nations. They're simply involved and engaged in their Stop Canada from doing business. Uh, if, if these are the people we're doing dealing with. Get them out of there. There's no empathy, no sympathy for them. I understand First Nations have an issue, but we also have to remember that the First Nations along the line of the gas links um, uh, pipeline have all signed on to it. There's a lot yet to be done to get this resolved, but we need to have the leadership from the from Ottawa, from the from the Prime Minister and the federal government. And it didn't help when Mr. Trudeau decided to exclude Mr. Scheer from a party leader's meeting in order to figure out a way how to handle this. That was just that was just 
pure political malevolence. I'm not asking you to comment on on that, Dan. That's just my point of view. <laughs> well, um, look, it, uh, your 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 words are absolutely right. This this is a major issue affecting Canada's long term reputation. The other thing, though, that I'm getting the messages from from our members, small business owners is that for many of them who do have great sympathy for some of the unresolved uh, Indigenous issues, who have uh, who share concerns over some of the environmental issues uh, that, that perhaps are, are at question, they quickly start to lose those, those sympathies and that respect when their livelihoods and that of their employees and communities uh, are put into jeopardy. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's something I, I would urge those that are involved or sympathetic to the blockade to think about, is this really can backfire in a big way. Well, it is. I, I think so. I think that there there are Canadians that are growing in frustration, and as layoff notices start to go out from a broader cross section of businesses, as we start to see store shelves without products that we're used to buying, yeah. uh, you know, the, again, the social unity of the country starts to fray a bit, uh, and it's going to be tough to get that back. So, as we wrap up, and we have about a minute, Dan, please share with us the story that came out of your. Saskatchewan division of the CFIB about farmers and the carbon tax. Yeah, well, look, the uh, the federal carbon tax that's been imposed on Manitoba, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, Ontario, uh, it is having a whole bunch of impacts on smaller and medium-sized firms across the board. But even though there were some exemptions designed for agricultural op- operators, there are thousands and thousands of dollars in new carbon taxes hitting ag- agricultural groups. And again, these are the same agricultural groups in many cases that are being hit by by the blockades today. Uh, the the average cost of farmers is almost fourteen thousand dollars in its first year, and of course the the carbon tax itself is going to double uh, uh, this or has gone up this year and will for the next three years after this. Eighty two percent of agricultural producers say that they have been negatively impacted by the federal carbon tax. Uh, and it's time for a broader cross-section of exemptions and a real rethinking of how this carbon tax is implemented as it, as it pertains to the business community more broadly. Yeah. That is a huge number, and uh, $14,000 for a farmer is a lot of money. And we have to remember the farmers are the people who feed the rest of us. Uh, Dan, thank you very much for the time. There's obviously no time to waste to get this issue resolved and get the uh, the rail lines moving again and get the economy moving forward again. People are losing their jobs. People lose their businesses. And uh, we can't just sit back and say, aren't you proud of us because we've done nothing. Uh, again, my put my own commentary, Dan. I'm not going to drag you into that. <laughs> Thank- well, thanks, Ray. It was, a, it was a great commentary. I read it, uh, read it online after seeing it in your Twitter feed. Uh, excellent words. Well, thank you. Thanks. We'll talk soon, I'm sure. Absolutely. Dan Kelly, the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. The blockades continue. They're uh, now, as the prime minister saying, they have to come down. And again, as we said at the beginning of the program, to many people that sounded like a clue to the police to take action. And, you know, are there are police staging anywhere? We don't know that. There, people are looking. People are watching. We will find out as we uh, go on through the day and through the weekend. But this cannot continue indefinitely. It just cannot. A former British Columbia premier, former attorney general of the province, and former federal minister of health, Ujal Dossange, tweeted on uh, this, this issue. 
And I always like to speak to Premier Dosange when there are critical mass issues underway in this country and happens more frequently than I would like these days. And uh, I contacted Mr. Dosange earlier today, and he's uh, very kind to join us on the show. And I say that because it's the middle of the night where you are, Premier. Thank you so much for the time. Good to be with you. You tweeted your concern. Um, the Prime Minister calls for rail blockades to come down and is effectively refused by those who erected the blockades. Speak to us about that, please. Where do you think we should be with the situation now? Well, um, first of all, I think that, um, uh, you know, uh, with all due respect, the Prime Minister um, um, was very slow to react to this. Um, and uh, it is um, sad that, um, that in Canada, uh, even the police forces have outsourced law enforcement to the courts rather than following the criminal code of Canada, which is the law that applies to every inch of Canada, regardless of where you, wherever you are, um, and enforcing law and order uh, without injunctions, which is uh, what they have the right to do and the obligation, in fact, to do under the RCMP Act and under the local police forces uh, legislations right across the country. Uh, they all have the obligation to enforce uh, the law and preserve peace. And um, there's been this uh, practice over the years that has developed that you always uh, go and seek injunctions. Uh, the police forces force uh, the politicians and the governments to go before the courts to seek injunctions, and then they enforce the injunctions, which is like saying we have the law, but we're not sure, so we want to go to the court. The court should tell us whether or not to enforce the law. And that, in fact, weakens uh, the enforcement process of the law. And uh, I think that is a mistake that's made here. And regardless of that, um, the situation today, I read um, a chief's comment that the RCMP is an occupation force uh, and, and therefore it must leave altogether. I can't recall the exact details. Um, but, you know, those kinds of comments actually go to show that sometimes uh, these kinds of protests aren't simply about justice, um, simply about seeking redress, simply about making a point. Sometimes they are about um, more than that. And I think the government ought to have recognized that and acted. And, you know, you don't act by directing the police. The police decide, local police forces and the RCMP, um, they decide when, how, where, and what law to enforce. And they're independent in that. Uh, and and the, the, for the Prime Minister to belatedly now say the injunctions must come down, no one needs to say that. In, in, no one needs to say that in, in a country where laws are respected and enforced appropriately. Um, I think the matter has come to this because the local police forces, uh, I don't know whether the police, um, you know, en masse um, feel somewhat more politicized. Uh, it, I mean, that's regrettable because the courts have in the past lamented the fact that, that they don't like police or politicians coming to the courts to seek injunctions to enforce the law that already exists 
on the books in the criminal code and in other places. And I mean, that's a larger point that nobody's made. And I, I, and, I and that is, that's worrisome. Um, you know, please um, don't go seek injunctions um, to prevent an ordinary crime from happening um, on the streets. They enforce the law and they should have enforced this law to preserve peace and order in the country long before now, and they haven't, and that's regrettable. Premier, how did we get to where we are? Why has this developed? Why is there the sense that there is a political connection, if you will, that police are not independent from government, not independent from the political process? Why have we gotten to this point? Well, I think we've got to that because, um, because you know, when, when I was dealing with Gustafson uh, Lake in British Columbia, um, there were voices uh, within government at that time uh, that didn't want me to take a tough position. Um, my position at that time was that, that, you know, you can't negotiate with people who have guns. You can't negotiate people who are occupying private property uh, in defiance of the law uh, and that the police have to do their job. And that kind of toughness hasn't been shown by this government um, uh, at this time. And that is why, you know, when, when, the, when the police forces sense that there is lacking a political will to enforce the law as it stands, regardless of how just or unjust the issue might be about which you are demonstrating, the justness or the unjustness of the cause about which you're barricading um, access to, you know, pathways and railway tracks and other other uh, things, um, you want, one should be able to expect that the law would be enforced. Um, if if we become choosy about whether or not we're going to enforce the law, um, because. Uh, this is a, a, an injustice that has gone on for too long, and perhaps we shouldn't enforce uh, the law at this particular time. Uh, then I think it, the, the process becomes politicized. What we have to say very clearly, and the government, you know, to its credit, Prime Minister Trudeau has been talking about reconciliation and doing more than ever before uh, to make sure that we uh, have redress and justice for all First Nations in the country. Despite that, if you have barricades going up, then there's something wrong. And, and we have gotten to this point because politicians don't recognize that, that without law and order, without peace, uh, there can't be a civilized society. There can't be progress. We have a framework. We have the criminal code. We have other laws. That's the framework within which, you know, governments are open to negotiations with the First Nations. And they've been at the tables for a long time, at least in British Columbia, they've been there for a long time, uh, trying to reach treaties. And, and, if, and, and if we can't continue that process, and if, we, if it comes to barricades and blockades, then there's a problem. Then the law has to be enforced. We've come to that because over time, we have, um, the, the, the political will has diminished to deal with these issues in a way that continues to maintain a civilized society where protests can go on peacefully, 
where negotiations can go on, where court cases can, can go on, where arguments back and forth can go on in a civilized fashion, in a way uh, where we can change the society for the better. We all recognize that there have been injustices vis-a-vis First Nations, um, but you can't allow barricades and blockades to dictate to anyone how the process should work. Yeah. Prima Dosange, I, I wrote an editorial piece, and uh, it ended this way. Canada is a nation of laws that enforce them. Failure to do so does not demonstrate strength and resolve. Rather, it timidly greenlights even more disruptive and harming future behaviors. Absolutely. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. You know, I took that position back in 1995. Um, that was the largest police operation in the history of the country, 400 police officers from all over the country in Gustafson Lake. It happened around the time of the Chipper Wash, uh, and, you know, which was obviously uh, a, a tragic thing uh, at that time. And I worried every night. It went on, the, uh, the blockade went on for almost a month. Uh, we, I worried every night that there could be bad incidents. But the fact is, if you're the Attorney General and if you're the Prime Minister of the country, you should, you should stay awake night and day to make sure that people's business gets done while negotiations to create a better Canada uh, and discussions to create a better Canada continue as well. You know, one process can't be allowed to stop the other. Premier, it's always great talking to you. Thank you so much uh, for the time. Marin O'Toole joins us on the program. Mr. O'Toole, thank you very much for taking the time. If you were Prime Minister, how long would the blockades have remained in place? Uh, they wouldn't have remained in place. I would have passed what I said in my release, a uh, Freedom of Movement Act, and de- declared several key pieces of national infrastructure as critical public infrastructure, that would allow the police to immediately clear off uh, due to violation of that designation. Uh, rail lines, ports, national highways, airports, these are infrastructure in the public good and that are critical to our economy, to the well-being of families, people providing for their kids, getting to work, and they can't be held hostage by uh, people trying to make a political point. Um, that's not protest. That's not you know, public free speech dissent, it's actually breaking the law. And uh, we would make it even more clear by declaring these critical pieces of federal infrastructure to be critical and, and not uh, not available to be blockaded. One concern is expressed that to physically remove blockaders and arrest blockaders, uh, that it might lead to greater unrest and confrontation. What do you say to that? In fact, the opposite is true, Roy. When the law is eroded and not respected, that encourages more people to become lawless. So the law is a very important thing, and I think Indigenous Canadians recognize that because the treaties for some nations that have treaties are a legal document that predate Confederation. And the case law that has developed Aboriginal title going back 30 years, that when I was in law school, we we learned about the Delta Mu and other decisions from the Supreme Court of Canada granting Indigenous rights under the Constitution. Those are forms of law, too. So you can't pick some forms of the law that, that you're going to embrace and and ignore others. So rule of law needs to be paramount for all citizens. 
Has our national reality been compromised by the lack of action, lack of leadership over the last, let's focus in on the on the nucleus of it, over the last two weeks? It has been. And what is really shocking to most Canadians that even when the Prime Minister uh, did his press conference update and said it's time for them to come down, offered no real rationale for why and offered no suggestions on how he would empower or enforce the laws and encourage them to be respected. He seems helpless. And what's really troubling is this is really a larger anti-development movement that is using, in many cases, Indigenous issues as a a charade to cover up a wider anti-development, anti, in some cases, capitalist sentiment. And so the more you allow that to linger, the more you're going to see these groups kind of attacking our economy in any ways. And, and uh, it, it's troubling, but this is from a government under Mr. Trudeau, whether it came to canceling pipelines, banning tankers, bringing in a bill, Bill C-69, against the wishes of most uh, premiers and confederation. He's been very anti-development. We see activists motivated by that. Would things have been different if it had been a conservative government with Andrew Scheer? I know you're running for the leadership of the party, but if Mr. Scheer had won the election and were prime minister of this country, do you, is it your sense that things would have been handled differently? I think so. You know, you can't, you can't always answer hypotheticals. But what, what I think people should be asking is, I, my riding in the Durham region, uh, you know it, Roy, is not far from Belleville. It's about an hour away from me. How does a blockade in Belleville have anything to do with a pipeline project in British Columbia? And it is really um, an illegal act that is is symbolically a gesture to to something going on elsewhere in the country. Um, there are pipelines that actually run through those those lands where they are. I've inspected the pipeline personally in some parts of those in the Belleville area, at least, and and. You know, these are national projects. This, this, in many cases, was used as as an excuse um, to to stop uh, a line and draw attention. And the more there's inaction, the more we're encouraging people to ignore the law and, in many ways, harm the economic well-being of their fellow citizens. So reconciliation, Roy, is reconciling through understanding and partnerships. And when you try to hold people's jobs or the economy hostage, that's counter-reconciliation. So I think we need to have a prime minister who's willing to to forge partnerships and make sure that reconciling is respecting all Canadians. Yeah, I, I spoke earlier with uh, Mr. Goldie Hyder, the CEO of the Business Council of Canada, and uh, Mr. Hyder pointed out that a letter has been sent uh, to the government, and it was uh, authored by 50 organizations business organizations in this country, Chamber of Commerce, and they all in, uh, you know, uh, wanted to get involved, volunteered to become involved, and really uh, the sense is that I have is that the leadership quotient is, is absent in, 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 uh, in this country, and that has only created uh, confusion, added confusion to the existing situation. Let me ask you this. If you're Prime Minister O'Toole, do First Nations protesters of the coastal gasoline pipeline have a case in your view. And remember, BC Environmental Agency has ordered the company to engage in dialogue with Wet'suwet'en chiefs, hereditary chiefs, within 30 days. What are your thoughts on that? Um, uh, it, the project would proceed because actually the company engaged in the 
total way that duties and consults and, and benefit agreements are operating operating now in Canada. The, the, the rules were followed, and what, what's difficult is some of the hereditary chiefs had run to represent their council uh, in the council elections on an anti-development mandate and had lost the election. So there's some democratic rights to be respected here for Indigenous Canadians as well. And you see the matriarch of the band, another historic, important figure of the Wet'suwet'en, coming out and criticizing some of the hereditary chiefs who are detached from the long work done by the band to work on partnerships with uh, private enterprise and government and other levels of, of government. So, you know, I think it's unfair to the band and the band council. I also think it's unfair to Indigenous Canadians. You know, when Justin Trudeau canceled the Northern Gateway Pipeline, um, he didn't he, he failed in the Supreme Court duty to consult the Indigenous owners who owned one-third of that pipeline. That was done for political reasons, and he failed in the duty to consult. So the Prime Minister himself, when he brought in an Arctic uh, exploration ban, he didn't consult Inuit uh, peoples of, of our Arctic. That was another violation of the duty to consult. So there's been a lot of symbolism from Justin Trudeau and the Indigenous file. I want to see a Prime Minister, and why I'm running is someone that will bring partnerships to First Nations opportunity, but we also have to have someone that will stand up for the rule of law and making sure that reconciliation is about respect. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, you're not equivocating and you're not hiding from doing an interview, as someone else did. Um, Mr. O'Toole, good talking to you. Thank you so much. Hope you'll come back. Always good to be with you, Roy. Thank you. Aaron O'Toole, former cabinet minister, Member of Parliament, Conservative Party leadership candidate. So what I want to do here is just change gears entirely and get at a story that I think most of us are at least somewhat aware of, many of us are entirely aware of, and a whole bunch of us who are sports fans can't wait to see develop because there's also ethics involved here. The public and the MLB Major League Baseball players' reaction to the Houston Astros 2017 World Series cheating scandal is growing in intensity. The Astros are permitted to retain the World Series winner's banner and title. They keep their World Series rings. They keep their World Series winner's checks and the bragging rights. According to the now openly ridiculed and attacked Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred, Manfred rather, and Astros players are being threatened by opposing team players. I want you to listen to just uh, a couple of short clips here. Remember, they cheated all the way to the World Series win, and here's their second baseman, all-star, most valuable player in the 2017 World Series, Jose Altuve. First of all, I want to thank God and all the fans for a beautiful game, for a beautiful uh, playoff, you know, we really deserve to be in the World Series because my team has been working really hard to get to this point. All right, my team really worked hard and we thank God and we really deserve the win. Well, yes and mostly no. But here's the baseball, Major League Baseball Commissioner. I made it extremely clear to them that retaliation in-game by throwing at a batter intentionally will not be tolerated, whether it's Houston or anybody else. It's dangerous, and it is not helpful to the current situation. 
Unfortunately, Mr. Manfred doesn't have a lot of um, credibility with a lot of players in the majors now, and maybe not with fans either. And Astros players are being threatened by opposing teams' players, and bookies, bookmakers, are publishing odds on how often the Astros players are going to be thrown at by opposition pitchers, and speculation grows about other vigilante justice on the field, spikes up, slides into second base, the territory patrolled by, guess who? Jose Altuve. Professor Adam Earnhardt from Kent State University joins us. He's the founding member of the International Association for Communications and Sport. His books include Judging Athletes' Behaviors and Sports Fans' Identity and Socialization, Exploring the Fandom. And uh, Adam, I know I'm only you have. Make, I know you have a new. I'm only going to make. I'm only going to make one slight correction. I'm at Youngstown State University. What did now, I say? I, I did my. I did my PhD at Kent State, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right up. Right up the street. <laughs> All right. And your new book is ESPN and the Changing Sports Media Landscape. That part. Yeah. That part I got right. Okay. So, um, the Astros. First of all, let's deal with this. Your perspective of and what you know what you know about fans' reaction to the Astros retaining all the benefits of cheating their way to the World Series in 2017. Well, I mean, regardless if you're a Houston Astros fan or not, uh, whatever your position is on all of this, you're right. Uh, and and the reason why I say that is is because there's no, I mean, you're kind of in this impossible position. Um, if you're not an Astros fan, of course you're going to denounce this and, and, and cry for uh, justice. But, you know, if you're a Houston Astros fan, uh, regardless of where you are in the world, uh, you know, there, you've, you've built your, in many cases, identity, um, your, your allegiance uh, around the team that won the championship. And so for the last couple of years now, you've been celebrating as though your team won it fair and square. Um, I would think, though, that there are some fans, even within the Houston Astros uh, group, that would suggest that, yeah, there's something wrong here. And But they also, uh, many of the Houston Astros fans that are, are you know, being interviewed uh, will will tell you that, well, yeah, we're, we are being punished. We've been punished. And so now we've, you know, we're, we're ready to go. So I don't know where it's going to go beyond that for the fans, but I, I do know that uh, – uh, what's going on with the players and the reaction the players are having uh, is going to it could could potentially explode into something much bigger. So let's talk about that because we have major league stars who are speaking out against the Astros. We have major league stars who are speaking out against the baseball commissioner. There are threats of vigilante justice, if we can call it that, on the field. There are bookmakers who are predicting how many times the Astros players are going to be thrown at by opposing yeah. pitchers. There are the expectations of spikes up slides into Jose Altuve. How much of oh, this yeah. is going to happen and how much of it is media-driven? Well, I think a lot of it's media-driven. But, you know, the irony to all of this, of course, is that you know, no current Astros player was punished. They, you know, they all received right. immunity to testify uh, or be part of the investigation. But, but yet, if if a player uh, from another team is caught intentionally throwing uh, at at, a, at an Astros player, they, you know, they could potentially be suspended. Which is ironic because none of the Astros players were suspended for for this cheating scandal. So, so that's a huge problem. Um, whether or not these players actually go through with any of this, I think um, is, is yet to be seen. 
Um, you know, we have seen cases in the past where, uh, you know, players, pitchers throw at other players uh, when, you know, bad things happen in the same series the night before or the day before. Uh, but those, those usually, that's usually water under the bridge and usually don't hear much about it. And that's because the players are, first and foremost, supposed to be professional. And, and that means professional, there's a professional code of conduct. Um, now, obviously, some of that was violated in this cheating scandal, but I think most players still adhere to that code of conduct and they're not going to retaliate. You don't expect it to happen. I think. I think. You know. I, interestingly enough, I've talked to a number of fans about this. Uh, quite a few, actually. And I uh, look. Uh, I gave up on baseball in 1994 when they had the world, the, the strike, and the lockout. I, I actually have probably watched. I watched a couple of World Series games and a couple of other games over the last however many years it's been, uh, 20, 26 years. Um, and I used to be such an absolute baseball nut. But I talk to the fans who say, yeah, some retribution is necessary because these guys haven't lost a thing. They're still world champions. They still have the banner. They still have the rings, and they still have the money. They deserve to be thrown at. They deserve some spikes yeah. up activity. Yeah but, who, yeah, but who do they blame for that? I mean, I, look, I get, I get why they want to blame the players. But here's the problem. They, I mean, most of them are directing, and I think rightly so, their anger towards Manfred. So, so Rob Manfred, for, you know, your listeners who don't know, Major League Baseball commissioner, uh, was kind of in this, like, between a rock and a hard place, right? If we know anything about baseball and baseball players and player unions, and it does, really doesn't even matter if we're talking about baseball. We could be talking about hockey or football. There's almost like this, like, code of silence that, that happens among the players. Like, if something bad is happening, uh, the players know about it, and the coaches know about it, and managers know about it, but they're, they're going to take care of it in-house, or they're going to take care of it in-game. So what Manfred's position was, and by the way, if, if, uh, if your listeners really want to do kind of a deeper dive on this, I, really, I would encourage them to read um, uh, Dave Waldstein's article in the New York Times today about, about the, the, like this uh, precarious position that, that Rob Manfred is in. Okay. So... If, if Rob Manfred wanted to get any information out of these players during his investigation, mm-hmm. it was only going to be through immunity. So the only way he could basically get any kind of, like, this is what happened, you know, uh, and very detailed information from the players was to promise them that they wouldn't be prosecuted. Adam, why not take away their, their title? Why not take away their World Series win? If that happens in other leagues, like in, in, if that were to happen in the U.K. and Premier League Soccer, the championship would be vacated. Yeah, so that's a question that um, has come up a couple times that I've, I've talked to people about this. And the best I can say is that who are you taking the title away from? Uh, if, if it's t- taking the title away from the Houston Astros organization and players who want it. And so take back the rings and take back all of that stuff. Then, yeah, I totally agree. But if it's to take, take it back from the town, if it's to take it back from the city, you know, and, and, and this is a, a city that was a, a region that was ravaged by a hurricane. Um, you know, and they were, they were basically, you know, I, I, you know, have been still in, in many places in many regions around that area, digging themselves out or, or mm-hmm. um, bailing themselves out. Um, I, I, I have a problem with that because I think that the reason why you, you didn't take it away and didn't take the, 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 the banner and the seer in the trophy and all this stuff back is because it really doesn't necessarily belong just to the Houston Astros organization. 
it belongs to the city of Houston and the, and the, and the Astros fans. Yeah, I can, and so I, to, I, to, to punish to punish them with all of that, you'd be punishing the fans as well. And I, yeah. I, I have a problem with that. I understand your, your point, but at the same time, I, I don't see how you can allow cheating to continue uh, to be rewarded, yeah, and that's and that's really what's happening here. The cheaters were rewarded. I like the story about the Houston Astros player who was walking through an airport a couple of weeks ago. A true story, apparently, and the fans recognized him. And one of the fans started to bang a garbage can oh, in yeah. the airport. And and yeah. and people who follow the story know that that's how they one well, way that well, they how, were how about all the little other. league teams that are pulling they're pulling the name the Houston Astros away from yeah. these little league baseball teams because they don't want the the kids to have to have that team name. What would you? What, let me ask you one final question. What's your response going to be if the other major league teams and the other major league players decide, yeah, we're getting even with these guys because we uh, we want to? And they start throwing at the Astros, and they start to um, exhibit vigilante justice on the field. What's your reaction? Yeah, I think. I mean, if I'm Rob Banford, I think you've you've already you know issued a warning, and you know that I, I think that's the real irony. You have to punish these players for you know some kind of uh, physical re- physical reaction or physical you know retaliation. Yeah, that's 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 obviously something that has to be punished because you don't, I mean, obviously, you know, the sign stealing thing, uh, people got hurt, but not, I mean, not physic. I would, I would argue not physically hurt, but in this case, you know, physical violence. No, I mean, I think at some point that, that has to be dealt with appropriately. Now, there are a lot of people betting money. Whether, on this. whether or not this was dealt with appropriately is another question. Right. <laughs> and there are lots of people betting money. On how many times the Astros are going to be hit by pitches in, in twenty twenty? There's a Vegas of, line. There's a Vegas line. Yeah, there on is. That. There's there's a. I, I have it here somewhere, uh, but there's there's a lot of money being bet on this. Adam, it's always great talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Oh man, anytime, Roy. And it's Youngstown, not Youngstown, Kent State. The Youngstown State University Penguins. <laughs> I love that name, the Penguins. And you're a great. You're a great guy. Thanks, Adam. All the very best. Anytime, man. Thanks. Uh, Dr. Adam Earnhardt, and uh, his new book is ESPN and the Changing Sports Media Landscape. He's an expert on sports fans and sports, and you can read about him. Um, This whole story really bugs me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.